Blog Talk Radio. of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. My name is Victoria Kelly. I'm your host for the evening. And my co-host is Annie Morgan. And uh, we are on scan number 3209. <clears throat> that means we have 3,208 shows in 3,209 3, after tonight. They're all archived. And uh, you can check them out as well. And I will be excited to introduce to you our special this evening. However, first, I have to tell you, that and ask, we have a single purpose, which is to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, um, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas and neglect, and we do so with only two um, goals. Educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its time of discussing childhood sexual abuse and presenting the fact that child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone offering hope and healing numerous paths providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in many issues involving prevention intervention and recovery again we are um on schedule 3009 or 09 um if you'd like to be a part of the panel this evening and ask some questions uh, please call 646-595-2118, and my co-host will meet on the back line and ask if you'd like to have any comments or questions or anything you'd like to say. We'd love to have you join us and support us this evening. So um, I'm going to double check. Um, um, Annie is um, Monica, Monica is on the line. Monica's um Good to be our special guest. Monica, are you going to be on the show tonight? Hi there. I am here. Okay. Fantastic. Fantastic. So I'll get on with uh, introducing you. Um, so my uh, special guest um, uh, co-host is Monica Boglin from, um, screw this up, Pallia Love, Washington, a survivor of sexual, physical, and emotional uh, child her predators were all family members, and her parents were intent on passing on Monica that behavior that their parents had to them. She also was lupus, and she was 29, 
painful autoimmune disease that has long been linked to adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. Monica became a life coach and a therapist in notes. I finally found a way to forgive the unforgivable and to firmly keep anyone and everything harmful out of me uh, that my life has been linked to. She earned her master's degree in metaphysical science and counseling and is well on her way to earning a PhD in the field. The first is my story is the way to become a service and to help those along the path of healing. I know that um, hope and help is available. On these episodes, we welcome various co-hosts, survivor professionals, who will assist in fielding questions and lead a variety of topics suggested by our calling participants. The trauma-informed participants as survivor professionals will help them guide the session on issues of child abuse, trauma, and healthy human sexuality. That comes from, um, again, questions and topics. Everyone is invited to engage on tonight's show. And please visit the NASCA.org website, which is N-A-A-S-C-A.org. And we've got about four programs, a bunch of resources on there. So, welcome, Monica. Yep. Hello, guys. You How's everyone doing? Great. I, I'm really glad that yeah, you were able to come on tonight. And I'm sure glad that you think timing is the day. And we really, really appreciate it. Um, our yeah. guests like, continue to enjoy them. Awesome. Well, I've know. been doing a little research and a lot of um, soul searching and digging deep and realizing mm-hmm. that um, you have to listen to your emotions. You have to listen to your mind. You have to listen to your body because mm-hmm. what we survive is in childhood trauma, the um, thought process, the way our body deals with trauma or a supposed trauma or a perceived trauma or abuse, it stays with us throughout our adulthood if we don't address it and learn to compartmentalize those feelings once they come up. So what I wanted to speak on today is healthy healing. We're speaking all the time about healing and moving forward, but I really wanted to address on how we can do it in the most healthy way possible because I do know that if we had access to the education and the awareness that's out there now, a lot of us would be dealing with the fallout, I'll say that, of these traumatic instances and trying to heal ourselves and unfortunately trying to heal these broken relationships, these abusers that we didn't break. If we had the access to the knowledge earlier, then we could have maybe, that's the only thing that I can say that if I had regret about, I could have maybe had a healthier existence earlier in my life and not have spent so many years trying to be a dead horse. You know what I mean? Because what I realized is even in my years as a teacher, it takes up to 400 different times doing a specific skill set before that skill set is ingrained 
in your brain and it becomes just a part of, you know, physicality for you. So you want to make sure that if a child was abused, kid for any reason, you know, in their childhood, Say that that happened 200 different times, that they got slapped for any one thing. Once we decide that we are not going to repeat the abuse and we once we're making those choices for ourselves as adults, whenever we come into awareness that what we survived was actually abuse, it was negative, it was toxic, it was trauma, it was not healthy for us, it's going to take up to 400 times, you doing twice as much of the work in opposite behavior in order for you to learn new behavior. So I wanted us to understand that, you know, for that reason, that is why we've got to learn to listen to our bodies on our journey in healthy healing. So that's going to be our mind, our body, and our emotions once they come up. So first of all, yeah. on that path, I want us to be able to recognize everyone that we encounter once we started to open that little mind's eye, we're opening our heart, and we're on our journey to healing. Not saying that all people are toxic, but most people can be capable of toxic behavior. So in that instance, I want us to recognize negative words, negative self-talk, learn to tell the difference between words that have good intentions and those that do not. I wanted to put the focus on that because you may have moved away or moved out of state or even lived in a different country than that mother or father, sister, brother, whatever happened that was the abuser. But if we haven't recognized the traits in them that made them the abuser, us receiving the abuse as far as being molested or being hit or slapped, kicked, whatever, physically abused, being uh, neglected, words are things. I remember Maya Angelou saying this in one of her talks once, that they get can get into your clothes and into your skin just like bugs that burrow into carpet and your drapes, and you have to keep things clean, you know, on a regular basis. Well, we have to learn to do that for our emotional selves as well. So learn what toxic behavior words mean when people speak them, even though they're not speaking them about you. They are speaking, maybe they're speaking them indirectly about someone else. The fact that that person is capable of toxic words pulling you into that dark space with them. And you ultimately are going to have to make the decision. Do you want to spend time to try to coach this person out of their negative state of being? Or are you best? with putting distance between you and that person. And, again, learn to put yourself first, which is for me in healthy healing, that's going to be the first effort for everyone. 
So we really got to understand what, because when we grow up in a toxic behavior and we don't know anything else, we haven't experienced anything else, then rightfully so, we don't know that what other people are doing around us is still negative. Uh, uh, someone growing up and they have living next to a power plant, but this power plant is putting these, you know, hard, toxic chemicals in their water. Yes, they've got a clean-looking cup of water, but under a microscope, you see all these toxic chemicals. So if you didn't know the difference, you will grow up your whole life drinking that glass of water that's full of toxic chemicals, which is where I'm going to take the talk today because that toxicity, again, carries with you throughout your whole life until you make an effort to recognize it, and you have got to start to filter it out of your mind, your body, and your emotions. So has anyone got anything that they want to add into that point right now? Yeah, I want to make a comment on uh, when you first started out, you said, like, if you've been, you've heard uh, 200 times that one went message message and how it takes 400 to get rid of it, you know. And, and the yeah. thing is, is that, uh, you know, I work with domestic violence survivors, and, you know, they were saying all it takes is to get hit one time or to get took one time or whatever. And, and all of a sudden, it's like your body remembers that, you know, and, and it's like, or, you know, just like, sh- sure, that's going to happen again. You know, I mean, your senses just it's like it's like you're walking on eggshells after that. And uh, yeah. but um, to think about is that's an adult. So to think about is a child, even one time, like it's too many, right? And um, as as children keep getting these messages repeated and repeated, and a lot of times we don't even know what those messages are. I mean, it took me a long time to like just listen to my like the messages telling myself like you're unworthy, you're unlovable, um, you know, you're non deserving, all kinds of stuff that we got somebody that got we got somebody on up um that needs to be mute their mic. Um I don't know who's on here that's got something going on in the background. But um anyway, um Oh, sorry, but, oh, I'm sorry. So, um, so what I was, I was going to say is that, yeah, my therapist, you know, was like, um, kind of saying what you were saying, you know, just, just think of all the times you were given those messages and to even find out that, uh, we deserve, um, to be treated better. And, and those red flags that you're talking about, um, that's what I call them red flags, because, you know, I think a lot of times I didn't recognize like unhealthy people just because, um, like you said, they're gossiping about somebody or, you know, to whatever. it might not directly to you, but, but to pick up on those signals. And once I got some toxic people out of my life, um, I got more time for healthy relationships. <laughs> if that makes right. sense. But that, those are my comments. Uh-huh. And I'm sure we got more callers on too. And if you like to call some people. Yeah, if we have any callers, we want to go ahead and um Yeah, we've got we've got uh quite a few I think all the mics are open. So we we've got like Bill to... on the line. Okay. 
Yes. And we have Philip who's listening. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, Bill? Can I jump on for a, a couple minutes here? Is Monica here? Yep. I see your name in the list. Are you here, Monica? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Child of uh, Deborah uh, Warner, Dr. Deborah, who we have consistently on our show. Um, Dr. Deborah was teaching philosophy at College for um, Philosophy, um, at the Institute for Philosophy, College of Philosophy, uh, at the Chicago um, School, but it's the California branch, the Los Angeles branch. She's taught that quite a while. Uh, and she, she coordinated it with um, many of the people who she taught, the students who volunteered to, uh, you know, kind of run around the place and do whatever she needed. <laughs> it was really good. But the, the event is um, like a month from now, so I thought I'd, event it, I'd announce it today, and then I'll, we'll announce it a couple more times as the event comes closer. Um, and, of course, one of those times will be, a day or two before the event. But here, I'm going to be posting, when I get it, a flyer that I'll be sent, uh, which has not come to me yet. I just looked for it. Um, but I can just describe the event if that's okay. Is that okay, ladies? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Now, you jump in too, Victoria. You went to last year. This, you know, you went to last year. Yeah. Uh, oh, it was out fantastic. And, and they've, got, they've got speakers and um They'll have workshops and breakout sessions and tons of information. They got tables and, you know, um, 
if if you want to come and participate, um, we're going to hopefully get like a NASCA table where you know people that have information can come and put it on there or whatever. You just want to get everybody together. Um, I actually just checked into uh, airfare today <laughs> uh, to make it all okay. fair. I went last year and uh, was so delighted. And the most important thing for me is that it was free. There's so many conferences, things I've wanted to go to that pertain to child abuse and sexual abuse and all that sorts of stuff. And I want a fortune for it. And, you know, it was hard enough for me to get the money to get out there. And then my kids helped me pay for a hotel. But if they would have cost any money on it, I wouldn't be able to go. And uh, that they keep it free is amazing to me. And I I make sure people know that because everybody I've told about it is like, oh, I'd love to go, but how much is it? You know, that's always the, the big question. So I just, I really want to emphasize that. Right. And um, uh, Victoria found a pretty inexpensive um, room at a, at a motel uh, that was, it was actually within walking distance of the place, so it would have been a long walk. Um, but it's right next to uh, Union Station. So if you describe Union Station to a taxi driver, they all know Union Station. <laughs> and it's only, you know, it's right, right downtown. Basically, it's on the edge of downtown. Now, last year it was held, they tried something different uh, after a couple of years of COVID, when, which were, they were done on Zoom. Um, we're going back to the place we used to do it. But last year, for one year, we took a try at putting it at USC, and it really wasn't uh, as good as we'd hoped. So we're going back to the Endowment for the Arts, and we'll basically use the entire uh, campus of the Endowment for the Arts to do this. Uh, and it's a wonderful event, as Victoria said, there are many people, professional people, who will be there to give workshops of every kind. It all is devoted to, uh, actually it was originally to uh, abuse, a gang abuse kind of conference, and some, some of it still is. But it's broken out into all kinds of other problems that are public safety problems and, and, uh, and child abuse problems for us. So. Uh, there are there's topic after topic after topic, and they're all free, and they're all led by you know really uh, educated people who know their stuff. Uh, and now that it's been on so many years, it's a it's a destination. People like like Gloria, uh, you know, make plans now and get to. Uh, so anyway, that's going to be. In July, we'll, we'll repeat this, and we're going to put a, a flyer up when when I get it. Called the Script Conference, S C R I P T, like you write in cursive or script, right? <laughs> the Script Conference going to be on 20th and the 21st of July. Uh, it starts at nine o'clock in the morning on the tw- on the 20th, and it ends. I think there's a, uh, there's a piece of it that ends at five o'clock or the, the event starts at 5 o'clock, it's the last event, on the 21st. So it, I, I just want people to know we, we are sponsors of it. In fact, we, you know, in effect, um, participate in it. I'll probably be on at least one of the panels uh, and maybe a workshop or two, too. But it's a fantastic thing. And by the way, you don't even have to leave it once you're there because there's a really good little restaurant uh, that's, that caters to the needs of the, of the group, whatever it is, 
and uh, you know sells nominally priced meals and sandwiches and so forth. So it's right there. <laughs> uh, it's inside the building. So um, it's great because you never have to leave. And then there's the outside patio you can sit at to eat. It's, it's really beautiful. So anyway, I better shut up. And plus, you can the meet the show. you can meet the founder of you can meet the founder of NASCA in person. And he'll even That's talk right. to you. <laughs> right. He'll He's even great... talk to you. Amazing. People yeah. are amazed when they talk to them. <laughs> bring bring so some memorabilia with you so we can get it personally autographed. How about that? Oh, yeah. I could do that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. All right. And, uh, you know, a um, couple other people that are, uh, you know, thinking about getting here probably will. Um Annie, I think you were one of them, weren't you? Yes, I'm planning to be there. Exactly. So you're gonna you're gonna meet at least three that we know, and probably four that we know. And we've also had others that have come in the past. I have no way of knowing we're gonna come to this one. It was kind of interrupted with the COVID stuff, and we held a couple of years on Zoom, which were fine, but. Uh, but it's another thing when you're, you know, you're in the same facility with everybody. And this is kind of our annual convention. <laughs> so we're going to have um, at least at least five or six uh, of the of the uh, NASCA members. And we'll also have uh, another five or six or ten or whatever, 12, of uh, people that were guests, that have been guests on our show. And they'll, they'll come forward, too, and thank, thank us and so forth because they – they know that we're there, <laughs> um, so it's it's really a fabulous thing. And it's, it, you can consider it sort of our annual event, uh, and what a what a nice time to have it. <laughs> the third week of July, are you kidding me? In California? Oh my God! Uh, and of course, if you want to, you can extend your stay or quick days on the front and get to the beach and get to the museums and get to you know anything you want here in Los Angeles, which, of course, is a destination for a lot of people. All right. Well, that's, I've talked plenty, and I appreciate you giving me this time, ladies. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Uh, thank you. And that will be on the Facebook group, too, then. Say again? They'll be on Facebook for people to people find, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna I think I went on uh, the, script, gonna... the script conference on Facebook, and uh, they got their own page, too, if you know, that information will be there and on the NASCAR. Uh, okay. Well, I'll I'll make sure that I I, I can put the um can put the, the link in the show description when we get close to it, yeah. and I'll also, of course, put it on the um, web page, the front page of the web. Yeah. By way of promoting it. All right. Okay. Well, thank um, so you, Bill. Thank, I appreciate it. And I want to thank yeah. Monica. She made an extra effort to get here tonight, and that should yeah. that should be acknowledged. So thank you, Monica. I really appreciate it. No problem. No problem. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, let me get out of your way. God bless, and, and thank you for the time. Yep. All right. Yep. Um, so, for me personally, I've reached out to a couple of you. Um, I've been dealing with some health issues actually the past couple of months or so ago, and about three weeks ago, I was actually admitted to the hospital for an emergency uh, back surgery. So it was something kind of out of the blue that we were um, expecting. And so it's just become one of those things to where 
even in that instance when your health is in jeopardy, right? I reached out to those so-called parents and let them know what I was facing. And as we just talked about toxicity in people, I actually had my mother to me when I reached out to them for help. It was more financial help at that point than anything else because um, the, the, the hospital visits and everything in and out, but this was about a few days before the actual, I was admitted to the ER, and she actually had the ability and the nerve to say to me that everything I was going through at this point was my own fault. So if nothing is more toxic that a person can say to you, I want you to know that in my almost 50 years, and this person as my mother is 75 or 76, nothing in their brain clicks to them that, oh, my God, what did I just say? What did I just do? So when I corrected her and I said, I'm going to stop you right there, you will not speak to me that way ever again. You will not do it. And immediately it goes to, well, what did I say? And I laughed and I said, are you kidding me? She had me on speakerphone with her and my father. I said, are you kidding me? I said, you just said that everything I'm going through, health issue-wise, is my own fault. And she went to the defense mode. I didn't say that. That's not what I said. And so I asked my father, I said, did you hear what I heard? And in the rare instances that he, the truth, he said, yes. So then the story went to, well, that's not what I meant to say. And I said, no, we're not going to play this game either because you absolutely have no clue of what being a manipulator is. At this point, you're just a flat-out liar because wow. for you to not, hear your own words being spoken back to you, I'm not at this point asking for compassion or sympathy or anything. The fact that you even refuse to admit words that you said five seconds ago, that I'm repeating back to you exactly what you said, for you to say I didn't that's say it and then you can do say well, that's not what I meant. So I can right. give you a chance clarify what you meant to say because those are the words that you didn't say, but you did say them five seconds ago. Clarify that for me right now or prove me wrong that you are not flat out liar. And so the conversation went to change of direction, right? She wanted to change the conversation, wanted to change this. And that is what an abuser does at the end of their time of physically abusing. They don't have the ability to physically abuse you anymore, right, because you're not in contact with them, you don't live with them, you don't socialize with them. But their weapon of pulling you into lies and manipulation, that's the only thing that they have left. And, again, Mm -hmm. so I said before, I have it down to a science that it's about mm-hmm. every 
four to five years now. It used to be about once every year, then it would go two years. It's about every four mm-hmm. to five years now that I will bother to waste a phone conversation with them because it is yeah. just not worth it. But even like in the said, sense that I felt that I'm in a medical emergency, contact people mm-hmm. have to be put in place. You know, you go through that whole rigmarole when you have to deal with something that's being hospitalized. Right. And to not get one ounce of, oh, my gosh, how are you? And this has been on and off for about six months. They will answer the questions that I needed regarding family medical history, uh, things with insurance, things of that nature. But to actually get down to saying that, look, my body is still going through different transitions. I've spoken about lupus. We still don't know if this, what I'm going through now, is another issue with lupus. We just don't know. But, for, again, there to be no anything, maybe three phone calls in about six months on the same issue that I've had to speak with them about. Nothing on how are you feeling, are you okay, um, what do yeah. you need from us, nothing. Because I want to guard everyone that you will never get that from them. No. So we have, again, got to learn earlier in our adult lives how to begin to cut the ties with expecting love and compassion from them because they just simply do not have the ability or the desire to want to do it, and it's not our fault. But as the abuser does, even in the most serious of situations that I am now, for her to say those words to me. I told her, you will never again get the chance to say the words to me again, ever again. Mm. And that means no more phone conversations. If there is to be one, the conversation will start with, why did you say your last words to me in the manner that you did? I'm going to give you a chance to correct it and prove that you're not a liar and prove that you're not Mm -hmm. a manipulator and prove that you are still don't have the capacity at 76 or 77 years old, the capacity to be someone's mother. Prove me wrong by correcting your last words to me. If you can do that, I will consider future conversations with you. If you can't do that, everything is cut and dry. So we've got to learn to... I talk to my mom and I get off the phone with connection with them because they're literally draining us of our ability to love ourselves. And if we're still moving into our adult relationships at younger ages when we're having children, we're having relationships with husbands or wives or boyfriends or girlfriends, Think about how unfair it is to those people that we are to love and support them. But we're still fighting the demons of what we haven't healed with this toxic, abusive mother or father, sister or brother. It's not fair to the people who now love us because we're still putting energy into other people who chose not to love us. So we've got to learn to put those types of things in our memory bank and your emotional 
physical body, your emotions, your own words. We've got to learn to put those things into those emotional, uh, biological banks. And, again, take the time when you're hearing the words that triggers you, when you're thinking maybe you're with an abusive boyfriend, when you hear that friend that's negative and gossip. It's going to take 400 times, again, for us to overturn those behaviors that happened 200 times somewhere else in our lives that was negative or not healthy, if that makes sense. So with that being said, we've got to make a conscious effort into becoming a healthy adult because Uh if we don't do it, the people, again, who love and support us and we're, we're just thinking, put it into the back of our head. I don't have to worry about my mother. I don't have to worry about my father. I've got an awesome husband. I've got great kids now. But if you don't do the work, it will eventually show up as much as you try to hide it or conform to it or think you can put it out of your mind. If you don't actually do the work to Change, acknowledge, and then change those behaviors so they don't show up in your new relationships. People can heal people as well. So, again, mm-hmm. we've got to work on the healing part and not just trying to match the hurt part because it's learned behavior, and if you don't know any other behavior, you will eventually repeat that same behavior. So what does anyone have to add to that? Am I, well, I was going to say when I, I – yeah, I go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I oh, know. You know, so many of us have mother issues. It's really sad, okay? And I'm, I'm just so, so, so thankful that, okay, I was a rough kid. I was a tough kid. I did things I shouldn't. and and uh, But I grew up, and I knew that my mother and my stepfather were bad people in a sense. And I was not going to be like them. And when I had my children, honey, I took good care of them. And I'm proud of that. And you know what I did, too? Um, when my mother was getting old, I took care of her, too. I gave her everything that she should have given me as a child. Okay? I read, it was 75 miles per way to their house. And I would take down groceries. I would take down clothing because I had to steal my clothes when I was a kid, all right? They were millionaires. Get it straight. They were millionaires. And my brother got a lot of things, but I got nothing, okay? She always told me she hated me. And at the age of 14, she told me we would never be friends. And she meant it. So when I would, you know, go down with all of these, my husband went with him. Marty was still alive. We would go down with all this stuff, all these things, food, clothing. Um, Every September 4th was her birthday, and I always made sure she had a new electric blanket. She turned and she looked at me one day, and she said, why are you doing this? You see, she was feeling guilty because she knew how she'd been with me. Exactly. So I said to her, I'm doing this because I'm your daughter. And you're my mother. I did not say I loved her because I didn't. I have to admit that. And when she was laying on the gurney in the hospital, taking almost her last breaths, all of a sudden, 
I'm, she couldn't speak anymore. She was really too weak. But she looked at me and she said, Carol, I love you. I felt nothing. Because all my life I've been told opposite. You see, you said something before, Nancy. You said something. I think that was Nancy was speaking. Anyway, you said something. You know, you get all this stuff in your life, all this negativity, no love, no attention, none of the things that you need. You have to go out and steal clothing, for God's sake, and, and all this other stuff. Um, you know, it, then it came too late. But right. I was going to, I wanted my slate to be clean. All right, I wanted my slate to be clean. So I did everything that a loving daughter would do to a loving mother and stepfather. I ended up taking care of her, too, when she passed. And then he ended up giving me a huge inheritance. (laughs) But it meant nothing. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because I didn't get what I needed when I was a kid. It meant nothing. And that's something that they don't understand. And even with that, I'm going to put a little bit of redirection into what you just said. You said be clean because you were a loving daughter. So mm-hmm. you love someone who didn't love you. I would charge you to say that you did for her what you felt you needed to do as a dutiful daughter. Right. And even at the mother-daughter okay. relationship was never fostered, never nurtured, so you did it because you were a you Carol, were a dutiful, loving person, and that is how we are to treat one another in life. So I said before, these I love yous and I'm sorrys that come on the their literal deathbed, they don't mean anything to us, and when they say it to us, they're not saying it because they are even acknowledging anything. They're saying it because they are trying to clear their conscience, which is still manipulation, and that's still one of the tactics that an abuser uses. So it could have been they were doing it to even stroke a response out of you. The fact that you just say the word and let it be that, it wasn't worth the argument. It wasn't worth you giving her a rebuttal and saying that, no, you don't. You don't love me. It wasn't worth any of that. Just mm-hmm. let those words go into the wind and dissipate and move on. Right. She knew at that point on her deathbed, however long it took for her to become conscious of what she'd done to you, those few seconds, that it took her to utter those words meant nothing to you because a few seconds of an I'm sorry cannot constitute the millions of seconds that she tortured you and abused you throughout your life. That's correct. That's exactly right, Nancy. Let me tell you something. Because I didn't respond to her, she gave me the nastiest, dirtiest (laughs) look that you could um, ever imagine, which she gave me throughout my life, okay? Many times she'd just look at me with this, this horrible look, and it used to make me freeze, okay, when I was a kid. I'd get so scared of her when she'd look at me like that. She was like evil, and she told me she was a witch. I do believe that. 
If she found rosary beads under my pillow, okay. All my kids, kids, all the kids I hung out with, they were all Catholic. I became Catholic later on. So anyway, the point is this: she took those rosary beads and she laughed at them, and she made fun of me at the table, dinner table, for weeks. I would rather have taken a punch, which she was real good at doing too, than have that that laughter for like a, a few weeks. This woman was evil. And when she died, I cried a little bit, but I probably didn't cry like other people cry, you know what I'm saying? And um, oh. if I was caught crying when I was a kid, Not all I that. had to go outside. So deep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had to go outside. And if it was two degrees out, it didn't matter. Out I went. So you see, I, I found out, though, just for the end of the story, and then I'll keep my mouth shut because everybody knows how I can talk. <laughs> All right, so anyway, the point is this. Um, I, I had no voice then, and I think that's what makes us so talkative and want to tell people things now, because we didn't have a voice when we were a kid. Right. But, um, yeah, that's what I believe also. So, um, you know, the point is this. I found out much later on, after my mother passed away, she was almost 10 years older than my stepfather. So she went first, and um, he did tell me that... Uh, you know, I, your mother got raped once, Carol. And uh, I said, what are you talking about? I knew nothing about it. And I, I said, wait a minute. Am I the product of that rape? And I, if you had to know my stepfather to understand, but he lowered his head. He wouldn't make eye contact with me. And he mumbled, yes, like that. And he walked out. So you see... I, I, now, I'm not making excuses for her because, you know, if you didn't want me, give me up. Maybe I would have had a better life, okay, not going through all the things I went through. But um, he was afraid of her also. You see, when you have a narcissistic personality and you're a bully and all these other things, and maybe you're a sociopath with it, okay, which I believe she was, um, you can scare even a man if you're a woman. It doesn't matter whether it's male or female, okay? And he would he would say things, it, you know, like to get her away from me, but he would uh, not stand up to her. And she whipped me so many times I've lost track. I couldn't tell you how many times because I had to clean him up to my brother, who was five years older than me. And if I said no and stood up for myself, I'd get a beating. So you see... We have reasons for not liking our, our mother, actually our parents, because he stood for it. You know, he didn't try to stop it. He knew better. He just didn't do anything. So, you see, I tell people, like in the AM, I say, listen, we can't choose our parents. And um, many people are not meant to be parents. A lot of times it doesn't really have anything to do with this. Now, me, it was a personal thing because I was the product of the race. But uh, with a lot of people, you know, they just simply have parents that just simply should never have been parents. And it's never, ever, ever their fault, ever. Ever. You know, I'm meaning the kids, ever. Well, I've said that before, and I can remember being, um, I don't know, 24, 25 years old, as I'm growing as a young woman, again, I am living in the same city, but I'm putting 
fewer visits to go see them. I am not going to the family barbecues or birthdays or whatever as usual. You know, just living my life and growing into me. And it just felt like such a weight off of me. And I can remember, again, in some type of situation, I ended up at the family home where they still live now, that house of horror. And I remember just saying to my father, I did the acts to be your daughter. You made that decision at some point in your life, you and my mother, that you all were going to have a child, a second child, and that would be me, second in the line of this craziness in this house. Children don't ask to be born. No. And I could just remember throughout my life him always giving me this look of surprise and disgust kind of wrapped mm-hmm. into one because in that time in my life, uh, I was born in 73, so growing up as a product of parents that were um, baby boomers, per se, but grew up in negative homes themselves. My father grew up in a straight-up abusive home with his abusive father basically keeping him held captive in the same city snapping his fingers at 80 years old. He never drove a car, never learned to read or write, but he kept his children at his beck and call, right? My mother grew up with an absentee mother and father. Her grandmother raised her. So think about the the weight of what the two of them carried. And at the time that they met, they're putting all of that negativity to the side They're pushing it down within themselves and thinking that this marriage is somehow going to mend all of their own trauma. My mother, I found out, was a product of being molested, her and her sister, when they were youngsters. My father grew up as the bully of his family. So what happened to him as a child that he felt he needed to bully everyone else all of the time? So, again, This is the conscious effort people have got to make, that what I'm doing to other people, what I'm saying to other people is wrong. And I have no doubt that they had a consciousness about it because with all the abuse that went on in the home, as far as anyone else could tell, we were the Brady Bunch because we wore the best clothes. We were at church every Sunday. We went to all the best functions. We did the things that, the world tells you to do to show the world that you're a good mother and a good father. They did the physical part of it. They bought the clothes. We took vacations. We took all of that. I remember having this conversation with my father saying that, what does any of that matter when you are punching an eight-year-old in the face Mm -hmm. because she dropped a pen on the floor coming home from school? Mm -hmm. What sense does we're going to go to Disney World. What sense does that make in your world that that is okay to treat an eight-year-old that way? That look he gave me still resonates today. About four years ago, one of my uncles, his brothers, passed away. It was one of those uncles that it was the kind words. It was the loving hugs. 
It was I love you. How are you doing? Are you okay? Those types of things. When he got older, we lost touch, but I made an effort to go and find him and seek him out. He, about a year or so before he died, two years or so before he died, we reconnected, and we would call each other, you know, just checking in to see how you're doing. Those were the places I knew that I could go in my family for the love that I didn't get from these so-called people that were my parents. So I saw the change in the relationship with him and several members of the family. Some of them he treated like crap. Some of them he treated like gold. But it's also about how you allow people to treat you, right? Yeah. So when I told him that, I never asked to be your daughter. So there's no way you're going to continue to try to make the, yeah, somebody probably needs to go on mute. I don't know what that is. There's no way you're going to make without this again being manipulation. I'm using words again now that he ha- he doesn't have access to, right? Um, and again, in his word, growing up, women were not supposed to be smarter than their husbands, not earn more money than their husbands, just be behind their husbands and do whatever the husband says, right? That's the world he grew up in, and these are words I, I actually remember him saying to his buddies when they're out on the, the patio and they're out barbecuing hot dogs on a Saturday and drinking their beers. So I remember them, the conversations in passing where if your wife is getting out of line, you need to knock her upside the head the same way you do your kids because you're the king of the castle and what you say goes. So when I would repeat these things to him and ask, why would you say those things? For one, he was surprised that I heard him say those words because, again, it was always in passing. Maybe he and whoever's kids that were there with them We were passing by them going to the backyard to get a new toy or taking the dog from the backyard to the front yard. We had to pass through their area one way or the other. You know what I mean? Or they would just have these drunken conversations on a Friday night or Saturday night at these family get-togethers, and you're just over in the next room. No door, no anything like that. But for some reason, you don't think these conversations are being heard by children or children are so non-structured, we're such a non-entity that we actually don't exist to them. So they're having these conversations out and fully in the open, but not thinking that the children are going to hear these words. That's the emotional part of the damage that they do, let alone with the physical. So when you repeat these things to them, Again, when I went to my cousin's funeral and I walked up to my uncle's funeral, I walked up to the back of him and tapped him on the shoulder. I came in town unannounced to other than to, I think, one of my nephews and a young lady that I was staying with for a week because she and I were conducting some business. And it just happened to be, you know, two or three days wrapped into the, the, the time of my uncle's funeral. So I walked up to him and touched him on the back of the shoulder. He turned around to me, and again, the look of disgust and amazement together. I got that same look that I would get as a kid. Hmm. And I said, okay, so what we're not going to do is you're going to pretend that you're a good father. 
And I ask you for nothing else from you. So change your face when you look at me because there are people around here that are looking at you, people that I haven't seen in four or five years. And so they're going to be wondering, why are you frowning at me? Why are you looking at me that way? So at least for the sake of pretending to be something that you're not, for the sake that my uncle is in this casket not even three feet away from us because this this was the end of the burial, right? Mm-hmm. Change your face when you look at me. I'm not going to say it once, but once ever again for the rest of my life. If you do nothing else, whenever you see me, you will change your face. Or I can help you change it for you. Mm. And immediately the fake smile came on. Well when did you get in well, when did you get in town? When did you get here? And we're I'm like we don't have to go into the fake questions. We don't have to do that. As you said early, Carol, the loving daughter. I'm there as the dutiful niece to my uncle. Right. So what you're not going to do is disrespect the man that's in this casket, this man that hugged me and told me he loved me and was there for me with that emotional force, something you never did. So if you can only pretend to be a good father, you're going to do that for the sake of not destroying this man's legacy. We don't have to have a conversation. This doesn't have to go any further. But whenever you see me again in your life, you will change your face. There will be no more of this frowning at me in disapproval and whatever it is going on through your head right now because I could care less. I'm here for my uncle, and that is it. You have. So you did something very good there, Nancy. You did something very good there. You just triggered something in me. Um, One time I walked into the house. It's not Nancy. it, uh, Who Carol, am I talking it's to? Nancy. It's Monica. It's not Monica. Nancy. Yeah. Oh my God! <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you both sound similar. Okay. So. Um, well, this is Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad you were able to make the show because the last I heard, you know, I, I got that voicemail. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, I'm yeah. glad that you're okay. Um, but let me just say something here. That's that's interesting. Because um, I finally got fed up, too, okay? I decided that I was going to address the issue. So I walked into my mother's house, and uh, my kids were all over the place. Everything was fine. They were outside playing. And I looked at her and I said, hey, when I was in that that house of horror, because that's what I called it, too, the house of horror, with the pedophile. I had a pedophile uncle. Uh, Not blood, but that doesn't matter. He's still uncle, all right? And um, he, that was at the age of six to seven and a half. And he was 176 times. I might as well say it out loud. All right? And the only reason why I know this is I was drawing a very long mural-type picture with crayons. They let me have paper and crayons. And every time he touched me, I would make um, a line about an inch tall. And they probably thought that I was trying to make a border <laughs> right, on, on this paper. And uh, the day that I left there, because I did finally squeal on him to a good aunt of mine who came to visit, she said, Carol, you don't look clean, you look skinny, and all this other stuff. I got out of there, and I never threw that picture out. 
So what I did was, years later, with the little suitcase I had with probably two outfits in it, um, I counted those lines, and it was 176, and I was very careful about drawing them. Okay. Right. So that's how I know it was about that many times in a year and a half. 365 days a year, and then half of another year I was there. So I walked into that house, and I said, listen here, the dummy speaks. Okay? The dummy speaks. And I said, you and Hilya, my stepfather was Danish. She has a strange name. It's Hilya. I said, you guys were going out, and you left me in that pedophile house. I saw you maybe three times a month, mother, and that was to pay the people who were taking supposedly care of me. And I wasn't being fed properly. I was dirty. I was allowed to take one bath a week. That's it. And that was on Fridays because my mother might come on Saturday to pay them. Okay. My mother couldn't see what I looked like. The school could, even the school nurse. And she had quite a conversation with her. All right, now, not getting to that now, but let me just say to you. So the dummy all of a sudden started doing math. You were already in Staten Island, because that's when I moved to New York. You were already in Staten Island. And with Hilya, while I was being abused in that house, and you couldn't see it, but the school nurse could see it. That was a smart school nurse, and she did say something to my mother because I got into a terrible fight, and I almost pulled the pigtail out of this girl's head, okay? And uh, I just couldn't stand it. And she looked like uh, Laura Engels uh, on the, uh, <laughs> what was the name of that, that show? I loved it so much, Little House on the Prairie. Actually, she, she looked like the uh, storekeeper's daughter, the, the pretty little girl with the blonde hair and, and, and the twirls, whatever. And uh, so she something clicked in my head. It did. And I couldn't be taken anymore for granted, and I couldn't be made fun of anymore. And I got up, and I almost pulled her hair out of her head, one of those beautiful little braids that she had in her hair. Well, I went down to the office, of course, you know, and they sent me down to the principal's office. They knew where my mother was. I didn't even have a phone number. Okay. They got a hold of my mother. It took her an hour and a half to get to the school. And um, the nurse said to her, now this was a good nurse, she said to her, I'm looking at Carol. And she doesn't look clean. She's much too skinny. I was eating dog biscuits at times. It's in my book, okay? My book made it to Japan. That's my. That's what I get from it. I'm thankful. But I put in there every single thing, you bet, and I put that in there, that incident. So the nurse looked at her, and she said, you're standing there, and you have beautiful clothes on, and I look at your daughter, and she has this dress on that doesn't look clean, and it's much too big on her. She's too thin. Her hair is falling out in patches. I wasn't getting vitamins, was I? Not enough food. So anyway, I thought my mother would take me after that. I thought she'd take me, okay, but she didn't. So she took me back to the house, and she said to that lady that was taking care of me, my uncle's uh, wife, and he, he said, uh, she said, to, Carol needs more baths. So she left, and she said, oh, you want a bath so badly? Get up and take it now. I thought, good. 
<laughs> All right. I went up and I took a bath. And I was going down to the brook in the summertime, in the warmer weather, when I could. There was a brook nearby that separated New York from New Jersey. And I went down there, and I would bathe in the brook. I would do that. So, you see, when we're brought up in terrible situations like this, where we're neglected, talk about the neglect, there's neglect. Where we're terribly neglected, we're not told that we're loved, we're not valued as a person. We have nothing to say like the man who was on our show, and I call him wallpaper because that's what he said he felt like in his house, wallpaper. Um, He was like there, present. He called himself wallpaper. I get it. Um, Then you grow up and you have terrible dysfunctions of of yourself because you're trying to grow yourself up and you make a lot of mistakes and you also develop all kinds of PTSD, which you know, you should know, that the DSM-5 does recognize today the post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get back and, to Monica. Yeah, okay, so that's, uh, that's right. Okay, so I'm done. But the point is, I just wanted to get that out there, you know, that we who have mother problems and all these other things that we go through, okay, yes, we're going to grow up and we're going to have problems. So here we are today. I consider myself 95% healed. I always tell Bill that just to make him laugh. And um, I think I'm pretty close up to that. Okay, I'm done. Goodbye. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, thank, thank you, you so for sharing, Carol. Carol. You're yeah. welcome. Yep. But definitely, I don't think we'll ever be 100% healed, so 95%, 99% is close to us. I always say this. Our very first trauma we have And we have to accept this as the spirits that we are because we, at least I personally believe that we're in this state, in this life, but we have our spirits are constant energy. So unfortunately Mm -hmm. we have to endure some negative things in this life in order to be more fulfilling and purposeful and reach your calling in this life, however long or short it'll be. So our very first trauma is actually birth, if we were to think about it. Right. Coming through the birth canal, and at least in the physicality of it, um, your birthing process. I can't say your gestation process, because we know we have mothers that are not very healthy, during their time. They mm-hmm. could be alcoholics or drug addicts or they're not eating well, poor diets, things of that nature. That's just stuff that they're doing to themselves. Then we can have mm-hmm. things that mothers can't help. They could have high blood pressure, a history of this, a history of that, and it, it's, you know, a constant game of is the baby okay, is the baby going to be safe. But our actual first trauma in life is the birthing process. So when you come out, The first thing, after they clean you up, get all the mucus and everything out of you, before they even get you to the mother's nipple or give you your first little baby bottle, the first thing they want to do is clean you up, slap you on your bottom, okay, get that part done, and put you in your mother's arms. So after the immediate trauma, it's supposed to be the immediate caregiving and nurturing. 
say mm-hmm. you guys actually physically think about that. You're placing your mother's arms immediately after being born before you're even given anything to eat because the emotional mm-hmm. part of ourselves is the physical part and leads to the physiology of how everything else is nurtured and grows. So, again, going back to being fulfilling of ourselves and making a conscious effort to be a healthy adult, that's understanding what those feelings are, what those words are when they come up in your husband, your boyfriend, your kids. How, Whenever it comes up and you feel the need to try to make a change or to redirect it, but we've got to start doing that earlier in our adult lives so we can make better choices in our lives when we decide to get married or become a parent ourselves. Or, as Carol said, she was placed in the care of an aunt and uncle. You know, we've got to make better decisions as adults on our own before we become responsible for other people. Because if not, that little wiggle room that you had from being birthed and having that trauma, that very first trauma, whatever trauma it will be that will show up again in your life, you won't have the capacity to immediately hug and nurture them and say that you love them. What you will do is go to the obvious physical things. Well, I gave you something to eat last night, or I gave you a bath, or I gave you new clothes. And as my mother would say to me, you all had the, the best toys all the time. What does the toy matter when you're yeah. slapping me for no reason? Because mm-hmm. you're upset, not because what I did as a 10-year-old was so egregiously bad that it so badly changed the world and you and your perception of the world and your friends around you and what they were going to gossip and say about, did you hear what Lola's daughter did? That was more important mm-hmm. to you to slap me than to actually get to the root of the problem of why I did whatever I did at 11 years old for you to slap me and send me flying across the room. So we've got mm-hmm. to learn to take care of ourselves and clean up our emotional homes, our physical, emotional houses, before we become responsible for other people. Mm-hmm. Would that be said, yeah, that negativity I, um, that we talked about in other people? you got to learn to take people in small doses, if at all. If they deserve or have a place in your life at all, take them in small doses because if you're still carrying any part of them and their crap. This is when it was a turning point for me when I realized I've got to get away from these people. I've got to get out of this the state now. I've got to move across the country now. Realizing that I'm carrying crap from my sister and her deadbeat kid's father or at the time my brother and uh, his uh, ex-wife. And they're, I'm the one that's just moving through life, working and taking care of myself, but I don't have the responsibilities that they did. But they are repeating the same relationships that they had when we were children, which were negative. They were abusive, physically abusive. People are cheating on each other. People are 
just downright being nasty to each other, but you don't know how to live a different way. So when I realized I've got to start cutting this off because their problems are their problems. They're not my problems. But I can't make the decisions for myself in my life the way I want because a part of me was feeling guilty about leaving and moving away and cutting it off. But something more compelling to me was saying, you have to do this and do it now. So taking small people in small doses is one of the healthiest things you can do for you. It will be something that they don't know how to deal with because they don't have access to you anymore. So let's think about that. What relationships have we had that we've had to learn to cut people off or cut back the time that we actually allow ourselves to engage with them and what their reaction was at that point? Did they take it in a healthy way and support you, you know, when you decided to move away for a different job or you're, you're happy in a new relationship and you and your new husband or boyfriend are going to move away? Or were they nasty and vindictive and vengeful? Think about that. Think about the words. Think about the gossip that actually got back to you about how they reacted when you just said no more. I'm out of here. So we got to learn to take people in small small doses if we give them the opportunity to engage in our lives at all. So what problems have yeah. anyone had with putting negative people? at a distance, I'll put it that way. Well, I was going to uh, um, AA and I had a sponsor, and I said, you know, I call my mom every once in a while. I was raised by my grandparents. Call my mom every once in a while. I said, and after I talked to her, I'm like sick, literally physically ill for three days, you know. And, And she just looked at me and said, you know, you don't have to call her. And it was like, that thought never crossed my mind, you know. Exactly. <laughs> it's like when somebody just kind of like says something that, you know, might be just totally obvious to them. <laughs> well, they have what you know? I call what I call the Oprah moment, and Oprah used to say the aha moment. So I call it the yeah. Oprah moment. And and with my grand grandmother, I was so inter intertwined with her that um, when when I broke off uh, seeing her um, over some issues with my kids. Um, it, it was like, you know, and even I just felt crazy. I mean, I just, like, I had to contact her. I felt crazy. felt, you know, crazy when I'd leave their house. Um, I, you know, my mind would be racing like this isn't right, but I don't know what's going on. And, and like you said, I wish I'd have known earlier. But the problem is we didn't, you know. Um, I would say I used to have regrets all the time, but now there are no regrets. I realized I made the decisions I with the information I had at the time, and I got bad information and outright lied to, you know, and and that's what I was functioning from, and so you know um, I like shows because, you know, it can give us new information and uh, we we can change how we react to things, and and how we live our lives. And the big thing is for me is, um, you know. I'm living my life the way I want to live my life, the way I ever, you know, had the opportunity. Um, people ask me to go out or whatever, and I said, if you want me to go out as a friend, that's fine. But, you know, if you want anything more than that, like a dating or whatever, 
you know, I just don't have time for it because I've put time into relationships and stuff all my life. But I've never put any real invested uh, time into myself, you know. And I uh, always felt like I had to live for somebody else. And if I put somebody else, I put myself first, you know, I was going to hell. I'd but, ask me. <laughs> but, you know, and that's it's a lot of work from that to, you know, from, from feeling like you can't do nothing for yourself makes you feel good to I'm I'm living my life to feel good. I'm 60, you know, when I turned 60 years old, I said, now it's time to live life. I was telling everybody that. Now it's time to live my life, <laughs> you know. And, you know, other people just looked at me like really weird, but they don't, they don't understand, you know, the 60 years of history I have. <laughs> exactly. Uh, trying to make everybody but happy and, and kind of, of... Like you said, not knowing that you could basically say no to people or that you yeah. cutting off the relationship with your grandmother and it felt weird, but you knew it was wrong, but you never mm-hmm. had an example of positive. So, you know, yeah. for me, it started to happen when I was around 18 or so. I was in beauty school, still living at home, but I remember mm-hmm. hanging out with friends that I would meet there at school in my program. This one particular girl and I, we were going to an event together, on a Sunday, and I remember going to her house to pick her up, and her family had made this whole big deal of like a like a lunch brunch thing kind of put together because it was a mm-hmm. afternoon event around like one o'clock in the afternoon. So I'm there to get her around twelve or so, so we can head on out and go be there on time where we got to be. They prepared sandwiches and tea and all of this stuff and just welcomed me into the house and she talked so much about you and she appreciates you, blah, 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 blah. Stranger, yeah. her family was to me. She wasn't. But her family, to me, were strangers meeting them for the first time and these people just embraced me with so much yeah. niceness and so much good words and things of that nature. That was the very first time out getting literal contact outside of the house of horrors, outside of my immediate toxic family, getting the right. opportunity to engage with other people that would just say, you look nice today, your hair looks nice, yeah. or we're so grateful to you for, like they gave me 50 bucks for gas. I'm like, we're, oh, we're going like 15 minutes away just to downtown, stuff like that. But thank you for picking her up. We know you're going to bring her back. We want you guys to have a good time. We don't want you to worry about things, stuff like that. Getting appreciation from other people. So once you first get an example of that, yes, it feels weird, but now you know what it is. So once you start to encounter it and you go back to that old negative stuff, it still took mm-hmm. me years to be able to put the barrier down and say, no, you're not going to speak to me right. this way. No, you're not going to behave this way. And, again, I found myself still doing it at almost 50 years old with these 70-something-year-old parents and this horrible mm-hmm. spirit that inhabits their body, inhabits the house that they've been living in for 50 years. They are just mm-hmm. completely resigned to being possessed, for lack of a better word, by this poltergeist-type spirit allows them to think 
the amount of evil that they permeate and put out into the world, for one, it's not evil. And then for two, Mm -hmm. well, it still doesn't matter because you don't matter. Like I said when she said the words to me, everything that's happening to you right now is your own fault. As soon as it came out, I stopped it with a no. You're not going to speak to me that way. How dare you? And then it puts them back into... If you get an I'm sorry or something like that, it's only because they feel shame about it. And right. unfortunately, they really don't even know why they're sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Shame is more important to them to try to stir them or shape some type of uh, acknowledgement out of them than just the acknowledgement mm-hmm. themselves of you being their daughter and there is supposed to be love between you and them as a daughter. They're more concerned Mm -hmm. about being shamed than they are about actually admitting to you that they hurt you and they put you through all this. But how could you do that to me if you're my mother and you're supposed to love me? So, again, they're only showcasing the exact behavior that was shown to them. I'm not saying it's Mm -hmm. okay, but the only way Mm -hmm. I've been able to deal with it over all of these years as Carol said before she got off, looking at the medical and as they put those different classifications in, specifically now under psychological issues, I do believe that mm-hmm. child abuse under any umbrella, physical, sexual, mm-hmm. emotional, anything, I do believe mm-hmm. that it will be classified as a mental illness sooner or later because it has yeah. to be. Nothing else yeah. makes sense. It fits in yeah. no other box. When you're talking right. about years and years and decades and decades of the same behavior. And so, again, in Carol's instance, when they tell you on their deathbed, I love you, or it may be an I'm mm-hmm. sorry, it's not mm-hmm. for you, and it never will be for you because they've had years to say it. They're saying it because they know that they are in fear of death and Mm -hmm. what is now going to happen to them regarding karma and what they've got to meet their maker. They know that at the very end. And so the I'm sorry is their Willy Mm -hmm. Wonka ticket on the way out. Their (laughs) Willy Wonka golden ticket on their way out. Well, if I say I'm Mm -hmm. sorry now, then maybe God will forgive me. So trust yeah, me. Right. The I'm sorry, right. acknowledgement and all that is not for you. It's for them. And it's still the ultimate manipulative tactic that a narcissist right. will use to get you to feel sorry for them. Because, again, yeah. you don't exist to them. You're just a right. thing that happened in their life. And if you're doing anything outside of what they want you to do, what they can control you to do, the mm-hmm. immature 12, 13, 14-year-old arrested development part of their brain, that's actually what you're still dealing with throughout your life because they haven't yeah. grown. They haven't learned new behavior. And so when the I'm right. sorry, the I love you comes on the deathbed. They're doing that because someone told them, well, you need to say this and you need to say this before you die. Not before you die, but before they die. A lot of people might even say they're sorry before that because, you know, I go to AA. I've got 
a lot of time in, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and in uh, Amazon. And uh, a lot of people will say they're sorry to family members, but, you know, they can't, they can't put their finger on something that they're actually sorry for. You know, they can't recognize what what yeah, they yeah. have done because, you know, the harm they have done. They're just like, I'm sorry, you know, and that should smooth everything over. And, you know, yeah. um, well, I don't know why they keep bringing it up that I did this or that. I already told them I was sorry. I'm an alcoholic. And I said, that's not an I'm sorry. That's an I'm sorry book. There's no true I'm sorry without a change in behavior. And you can't change the behavior until you acknowledge the behavior. Yeah. So I'm over that. Around the beginning of COVID-19, I began to tell Mm -hmm. people, I don't accept I'm sorry from anyone anymore. And I don't say I'm sorry to people because Mm -hmm. I'm conscious of my own behavior to know that when I'm interacting and speaking with people, to speak in a manner, in a way that I don't need to say that I'm sorry later down the road. So I don't accept and I don't give out I'm sorry. It is the most pathetic, short, slap in the face, backhanded, whatever you want to say that an abuser can give you. Because if they don't acknowledge what they're sorry for, what the hell good is it going to do? Yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, I wrote an amends letter to my daughter, and it took me a long time to write. It was a five-page letter, and I made sure to have my Al-Anon sponsor and two other friends that I really respected read it. Make I wasn't make sure I wasn't saying I'm sorry, but you know, uh, I'm sorry, but I was raised in an abused home. I was sexually abused. I was, you know, alcoholic family, whatever, you know, um, and and just you know, I'm sorry that you know. You and your brother had to go in on foster care at homes and, you know, this and that. And uh, um, the thing is, when my daughter was born, she was two months premature, so I didn't get to hold her. It was automatic in the incubator. And um, my husband at the time wouldn't let me go see her, so she was two months separated from me. And there wasn't, you know, that connection. And uh, also, you know, another trauma was my brother, um, before he was born, my um, biological father, who I call my sperm donor, beat my mom. He was trying to cause an abortion by beating her in the stomach, you know. And and she had three kids by the time she was 20 years old. And then she gave us all up on my first birthday. So my grandparents, I found out later on, they were my grandparents. And my grandmother said, well, you know, we had to take you. Nobody else wanted you, <laughs> you know. And I was, I didn't get a bath only once a month. And, but my grandma's house was really spotless and, you know, cooked all day long and did the laundry and all the, you know, um, wifely, you know, stuff she's supposed to do. But but they drank all weekend long, and we'd have to sit in the car for six, eight hours while they went drinking in certain bars because we couldn't go in. They didn't serve food. Or they'd bring us some bars, and we spent the whole weekend there and all our money, you know. So when I started going to Al-Anon, I really, I really believed all this time that my grandparents – drank because we didn't have money and then I realized we didn't have money because they drank. <laughs> I almost say it's like there was this filter I had to take out and turn around and put it in the other way with all kinds of issues. You know? And and so it was a big learning process. But um I didn't really find any healthy people to be around until I went to a battered women's shelter when I got away from my son's father and um I started being around people that were, you know, helping other people helping people that were in the shelter. 
And uh, that that was when, uh, you know, and then I got sober at 24. So it's been, you know, a lot of healing, you know, a lot of work, like you said. You know, it doesn't just magically happen. It it takes time and it's work. Well, we're almost uh, done here. And uh, um, I appreciate you coming on and I appreciate all the callers. And uh, I don't know if we get to get to everybody called in, but again, thank you for calling in. And um, this is um, also recorded, and so are the other ones. We've got 90 seconds left, so um, I want to thank Monica for coming on again, and especially with what you're going through. And uh, Uh, I want to quick say that Natalie Serenity Prayer. Yeah, and we hope to hear from you. Sorry for myself, but healing people, you work to heal other people. So uh, along with my healing process, I didn't have a great day last week. I had to bow out from that, but today I felt much better. So if anyone needs to reach me on a personal counseling basis, my Instagram is MSBTHAPHEALER, MSBTHEHEALER, MSBTHAHEALER. Reach out to me on Instagram, send me a private message there, or text me at 678-632-632. One zero nine eight. Okay, well, thank you very much. And uh, like I said, I hope uh, I hope you get to come on again. Uh, we always enjoy having you on. And uh, everybody, have a wonderful evening. God bless uh, adult survivors of child abuse, and uh, God bless children everywhere. And if you see something, please say something. Please help a child that can't help themselves. So thank you very much. Awesome. And Good night, we're going to play our music. Good night now. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.